0: Well, if you haven't been paying attention or you missed the the memo, we are not in the book of Exodus today. We are going to be looking at how God works through his people. um, Specifically, those who have been called out of their homeland to the foreign mission field to serve God, to give up everything they have, uh, to follow his call. And also those who either, because they are missionaries in a foreign land or because they're just natives of a foreign land in a hostile area, uh, those who are persecuted for their faith. And I think it's appropriate that we do this for a few reasons. One, the book of Exodus, uh, at least the narrative portion that we we were on for so many months, is really a story of God's people facing persecution. And like that verse I read a moment ago, it says from the very beginning of the book, we see that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. That God works to deliver his people Um, and to cause them to flourish. And sometimes that doesn't look like it does in the book of Exodus, but what always is consistent is that God is present among his people, and God is working out his plan through his people. We see that in Exodus. We're going to see that through some stories uh, that we'll look at around the world today. And then also, I think it's appropriate today for us to spend some time on this, because this is uh, the week of Thanksgiving, the week when we remember uh, what, how God has blessed us. Of course, it's not like a a holiday that we see prescribed in scripture. It's just a kind of a cultural thing that we do that has a lot of tradition associated with it and a lot of good food associated with it, of course, as well. Um, but as we stop to remember the blessings that God has given us, today may we also remember those who don't have the things that we have and who, those who are, who have to count the cost daily of what it means to follow Christ. Um, and so hopefully through what we'll look at this morning, we can do that um, a little bit better. And then also the beginning of this month was, uh, I think the first Sunday of November every year is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, uh, which Lisa has encouraged us in past years to observe. Lisa is sort of our point person for remembering uh, these atrocities uh, globally that um, that our brothers and sisters face all the time and that we just, it's easy to ignore them. Um, and so... Um, Lisa occur, encouraged us a couple of years ago to observe that. And we've been doing that for the last couple of years. years. We're not doing it on the day this year, uh, primarily because, uh, we needed to work it in, in such a way that we had a standby sermon for when little Millie was born. Um, and so in case you missed that memo as well, uh, Anna gave, uh, Anna Holbrook Bryce, Pastor Bryce's wife gave birth. I don't know why I pointed. She's not here. Uh, she gave birth to their youngest, uh, daughter. Uh, this past week uh, on Tuesday afternoon, uh, so Amelia Carter Holbrook was born weighing seven pounds, eight ounces. We celebrate with our pastor, uh, the blessing that God has given them, uh, and that he's given us, uh, our, our church. And, uh, if you haven't signed up for a meal, make sure you do that to, to bless the Holbrooks and help them out yes. as they adjust. Um, and we're happy to, um, to celebrate with them. So, again, the beginning of this month is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And so we're going to remember that today and and consider uh, those believers who are persecuted. Of course, we're taking a break through um, our journey through Exodus that we've been going through this year um, to consider the suffering that so many around the world endure for the sake of the gospel. Now, we have to remember the connection that we share uh, not only with one another, the local church, Um, not only with the historical church, as we do when we remember uh, traditions like liturgical prayers and communion, but also our connection with the global church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who around the world are faithfully denying themselves and following Christ daily, no matter what the cost. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, those who are persecuted for their faith in Christ stand in a long legacy of those who have counted the cost and followed Christ no matter what. And clearly, these verses show us that there is a special place in the heart of God and in the kingdom of God for persecuted believers. So today, we want to first consider and better understand the harsh realities of Christian persecution. And then, we're going to look at how even amidst persecution, God is still sending victorious laborers out into a hostile harvest. And so that's really what you're going to look at today. Uh, We don't really have a normal outline, and normally our sermons are built on a specific passage that's a little different today as well. Um, So again, we're going to look at the persecution of the church and how God sends victorious labors into uh, that persecution, into that hostile harvest. So today we're going to look at the victorious church that thrives in persecution and why the suffering of God's church shows us the victory that is in Christ. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about how the world will treat the disciples of Jesus. You we read from the Beatitudes, but also Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See, most of us have never really experienced hate. Now, maybe we've been yelled at by a, a troll on the Internet, or maybe we were even legitimately bullied at some point in our life. Most people don't know this kind of hate that Jesus is talking about, and certainly not hate for our beliefs. I mean, after all, we still live in in, in a part of the country that is primarily still culturally Christian, whatever that means. God's word, though, shows us that persecution has been a part of God's story and the advancement of his kingdom throughout history, way back to the very beginning. See, God's prophets and Jesus' disciples were persecuted, in the story of the early church in the New Testament and as we see from other sources after the New Testament was written, uh, they, they, these stories of persecution come to life for God's people. If you look at scripture, it's written largely by persecuted believers. and In fact, most of the New Testament were authors were, were killed for their faith. But it was also written for persecuted believers and written to give instruction on how to walk with God in often unthinkable situations. But persecution reminds us of the truth of the gospel. Because following God has never been about us, church. It's always been about him and his glory alone. And so is it possible then that God allows persecution to show us that what we think of as the persecuted church is in fact the victorious church? Around the world, we see church buildings burned to the ground. We hear of our brothers and sisters in Christ, hassled and cast aside, jailed, beaten, even murdered for their faith. But in those same stories, many times we hear the hope of God's goodness, and we see miraculous love in action. We hear about radical love. We hear about faith that won't die. We hear about a church that God said he will establish, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So is this what the victorious church looks like? Today we want to consider what it means then for, for the church to be the victorious church. And we look, when we look at the often dismal circumstances so many believers face around the world for their faith in Christ, we need not be consumed with worry and with hopelessness. Because we realize, we've read the book, we've read the end, the victory has already been won. And that victory shows in little points of light throughout the world every single day. In the spirit of not being a plagiarizer, because my high school English teacher really drilled into me, Miss Reed, if she listens to this, uh, that, you know, plagiarizers go to prison or whatever, uh, <laughs> scare, scare me to death. So most of the content from today is from uh, a site called Open Doors, uh, a website called Open Doors in a ministry Uh, And they put out a lot of content uh, to help people celebrate this uh, and remember this day, uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Um, So there you go. There's me citing my sources. There's check off the bibliography. Most of this is not original to me. So what comes to mind uh, when you hear of the persecuted church? Possible answers might include things like violence, sadness, (laughs) suffering, pity, anger, Hopefully, prayer and hopefully thankfulness for the freedoms that we enjoy. In the book of ne- and excuse me, in the book of Nehemiah, we're given an example of how to respond when the family of God is facing difficulty. Now, Nehemiah, of course, was one of God's people in exile in Babylon, and Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, and he uh, saw travelers from the homeland of Israel who told him about how terrible things were for God's people. Now, if you read through the Bible, the books of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra take place at the same time, and they inform one another. Um, Ezra starts this story of God's people returning home to rebuild, but they are forced to stop. And, and when they stop, they commit many sins. And the book of Nehemiah pimp, uh, then picks up after some of these rebuilders return to Babylon, and they tell Nehemiah that the rebuilding process is at a standstill. And in Nehemiah 1.4, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we can learn from how Nehemiah responds to this hardship that God's people are facing. His immediate response is that he cried and he mourned for them. He fasted and he prayed for them. But then the rest of the book of Nehemiah is the testimony of Nehemiah acting. He didn't let his brokenheartedness over the hardship of God's people prevent him from doing something about the hardship of God's people. And neither should we. So today as we dwell on the persecution that believers have, have continued to face around the world, may it spur us to action. And we'll look at some of those points of action later. We also see in the Bible Jesus' perspective on persecution In the book of Revelation, we're talking about the persecuted church. We can be thankful for the words of Jesus commending the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 8, where he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. You would think if God opens the door, no one can shut it. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. See, the church of Philadelphia was located in that city uh, during John's time where the church was going through brutal persecution, as were many believers in the early church. But Jesus assured them that their suffering wasn't in vain and that their pain wasn't escaping his notice. So imagine hearing those words from Jesus when he says, no one can close the door I've opened for you. He says, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. When the king of the universe tells his church that no one can close the door that he has opened, we can know with assurance that this is true and that he will have the victory. So as we read these stories today from our persecuted family, we should see that victory and come to see that these are not just stories of the persecuted church. They are stories of the victorious church. Now you might be wondering, is this what victory looks like? Is persecution, victory. You might think, you know, this is not what I signed up for when I gave my life to Christ. But according to the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of church history, it is what victory looks like. Jesus said, if they hate him, they'll hate us. Mm-hmm. And this is what believers have signed up for. And then not be popular mm-hmm. in many churches to talk about Jesus' words on the cost of discipleship about denying yourself, about taking up your cross daily, about presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. But this is what we are called to. This is what we have signed up for. And for so many around the world and throughout the history of the church, discipleship is costly every single day. So let's take a look at some countries where there are stories of this victorious church that I'm talking about First, to we'll look at North Korea. The, the website that I mentioned, Open Doors, publishes a list every year called the World Watch List. And it's the list of, of the top 50 countries in the world where persecution is uh, for Christians is horrible. And they rank them by how bad it is. Number one on the World Watch List is North Korea. So what's it like being a Christian in North Korea? Well, picture a professional football stadium uh, filled filled with capacity, um, around, you know, 50 to 70,000 people. Uh, the Tennessee Titans Stadium in Nashville, if you've ever been there, holds about 70,000 people. Or uh, the, the Baldwin Hemingway Stadium in Oxford holds uh, just over 60. So around that number of people. Imagine that, that number of people. That's roughly the number of Christians, not in North Korea, that's the number of Christians living in labor camps in North Korea. And their crime is simply believing in Jesus You know, while we might look at, you know, memes laughing at Kim Jong-un's silly haircut on the internet, Kim Jong-un runs the worst country in the world for Christians to live. To help us see the gravity of this, I want to show you a video about one Christian who survived a North Korean labor camp. So Morgan, can you play that for us?
1: 말만 해도 하나님단 말만 해도 그래서 그것은 북한에서는 세상에서 가장 나쁜 사람들은 예수 믿는 사람들이라고 했고 또 선교사나 목사들은 양의 가죽을 쓴 승양이들이라 신앙을 가지게 된 것은 저희 남편 때문이었습니다. 이렇게 해서 아이들이 와서 기도 아버지가 기도하라고 했고 예수님을 믿으라고 했다고 우리 아버지가 믿는. 지금 존든 거라고 해서 그때부터 우리는 기도하기 시작했습니다 신다. 아, 이렇게. 아, 이렇게. 예수님을 이렇게. 예수님은 눈으로는 볼수 없지만 이렇게. 아, 이렇게. 아, 이렇게. 아, 이렇게. 아, 이렇게. 아, 이렇게. 그 전화가 전하고 고구마 전화가 가면 10월에 가면 아픈 사람 10월에 주고 10월에 가면 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 10월에 이제 죽어도 가면 10월에 가면 10월에 아시기, 아쉬울 것이 없다고 그냥, 그런, 이야기를 했다고, 그래요 감옥에 있을 때 특히 감옥에서 정말 많은 사람들이, 옆에서 죽어가고 항상 주님께서 내 마음에 sleep, 되고 내 마음에 등대가 me, 되어 주시고. Thank you. 이곳은 하늘, 스포매게, 하늘, 에피, 바스로, 바닥, 이루어져, 오신, 스포, 베나도, 이소, 저거, 하늘, 저거, 하늘, 저거, 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 제주민한테 감사 인사를 나 사랑을 주시네
0: We're going to spend some time, um, a little later in the service, we're going to spend some time in prayer for our brothers and sisters in North Korea and other places. Considering uh, North Korean Christian persecution, you know, being a Christian there looks far different than it does here. There are no parents in North Korea reading, reading Bible stories to their young children, simply can't afford to for fear that the child may say something and reveal their beliefs. And then Christian fellowship doesn't look like this either. Um, There can be no worship services. There can be no gathering. So it might look like this. Picture a Christian walking into a park and taking a seat on a bench. And then over a period of time, they scan the park to see if maybe there's another believer to visit with for a moment. And despite all this hardship the believers face there, Open Doors estimates that there are 300,000 believers in North Korea who are worshiping God wherever and however they can. They're ready to preach the gospel to those who will listen. They're continuing to follow God no matter the cost. The country of Pakistan is number five on the Open Doors world watch list for the, the countries that are the worst persecutors of Christians. And in Pakistan, ambiguous blasphemy laws have been put in place, which can be used to throw any Christian in jail for a real or perceived slight against Islam. Any accuser can claim something derogatory was said about Islam or about Muhammad, and the person accused can be arrested and they can be sentenced to death. Often the accusation is accompanied by a group of people who are eager to administer mob justice. Of course, there's no justice at all. Pakistani children are educated in thousands of madrasas, which are Islamic schools, where they're often exposed to extremist messages and ideology. Additionally, women and children are abducted at an alarming rate, perhaps 700 of them last year, with some of them sexually abused, forcefully married to Muslim men, and forced to convert to Islam. Now, if you keep up with the news, uh, there was a high-profile story recently about someone who was imprisoned for their faith in Pakistan. Her name is Asia Bibi. Uh, She's likely the most notable of persecuted Pakistani Christians accused of blasphemy. She's a mother of five who was imprisoned since 2009, and she's been on death row in Pakistan since 2010 for her alleged blasphemy. And it all started when all she did was get a drink of water from a well that's used by Muslim women. Uh, Asia was isolated in prison, she prepared her own meals, she cleaned her own cell, and she avoided all contact with other prisoners for fear of her life. And after years of being imprisoned there on death row, praise God that on October 31st of this year, the Pakistani Supreme Court dropped the charges against Asia Bibi. She was released from prison, which is which is wonderful, except. Her acquittal saw thousands of protesters take to the streets in anger at the Supreme Court's decision. And demonstrators called for Bibi to be hanged. They attacked the judges, the media, the army, and any man or woman who dared to defend her. So it remains to be seen if she'll even be allowed to leave the country. And it's likely that her release will cause a new wave of Christian persecution in Pakistan. Yet despite all this, the hope of Christ is visible even in this context of persecution. Christians are standing there for Jesus regardless of the cost and are ministering and preaching the gospel. People who have born into Christian families are being born into Christian families who've never had the chance to go to church but are hearing the word of God for the first time there. Let's also look at the country in Africa of Eritrea. Eritrea is a northeast African country on the Red Sea coast. It shares border with Ethiopia and Sudan and Djibouti. It's number six on the world watch list. Eritrea is one of the most closed countries in the world. It's often called the North Korea of Africa because of its brutal dictatorship. No church operates in Eritrea without government direction. There is no evangelical presence, at least not publicly. And even with the supposedly allowed churches, The government can depose of its leaders, as it did with the head of the Orthodox Church in 2007. There's probably more than 1,000 Christians in Eritrea who are imprisoned in metal shipping containers there that function as prisons. Eritrea has a vast network of prisons, and often Christians can languish in these brutal conditions for years. And as a result of this, Eritreans of all religions are fleeing their country. A staggering number of them flee their nation to surrounding countries or to Europe every year. But Christians in Eritrea also are not hopeless. Even Christians who have had to flee often uh, say that they one day hope to return to their country to help restore the church. One Christian in a nearby country who had fled told Open Doors researchers, uh, they said, I believe the church will be a strong power to change society, play its part in development. We want to evangelize the many unreached ethnic groups, train good pastors that can lead the church, defend the faith, influence society with biblical worldview and values. The country of Nigeria is number 14 on the world watch list. And in recent years, it was Boko Haram, the militant Muslim group, that was the primary force attacking and killing Christians in Nigeria, particularly in the northeast corner of the country. Since the beginning of the insurgency of Boko Haram in 2009, they've been responsible for at least tens of thousands of deaths. And over 2 million people have been displaced through the destruction of their communities. One of the most public atrocities you may have heard of was the kidnapping of 276 schoolgirls four years ago. As of earlier this year, 112 of those 276 have yet to come home. Most recently uh, in Nigeria, it's the militant Muslim Fulani herders who've been attacking and killing Christians. In Nigeria's middle belt, which divides the mostly Muslim north from the mostly Christian south, there's a long-standing conflict between the Fulani, many of them who are nomadic herders, uh, and their conflict is with Christians who tend to be farmers. The Fulani shepherd cattle across the north of Nigeria and count on crops and grass wherever they go to feed the herd. The crops are the livelihood of the Christians, and this has resulted in decades of conflict. But over the past few years, these attacks have grown even more violent and more regular. Additionally, the Fulani militants often carry modern weapons, which has made the attacks deadly. There are reports that they often target Christians in Christian villages in Nigeria. This has resulted in Nigeria having uh, a huge population of Christian widows. Because when attacking church buildings, pastors and elders are targeted. And when they attack homes, the fathers and sons are targeted. And over time, this has left Nigeria with a great number of Christian widows. And yet the Nigerian church continues to follow Jesus and to serve his church. Churches are running trauma counseling centers, helping distribute relief aid, and they help with rebuilding uh, efforts in villages that were attacked. The faith of Christians in Nigeria has not died out. And these are only four of the 50 countries on the Open Doors World Watch list. Persecution looks different in different places. It can be, mean being squeezed through harassment, getting fired from your job, discriminated against in every manner possible by society, and sometimes even being killed. So, as I mentioned earlier, is this what victory looks like for the church? <laughs> well, it depends on how we define victory. Of course, the world says being victorious means. You know, having achieved something, being conquering, triumphant, or having success or triumph over an enemy in battle. But we know that God sees victory differently. He tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God's word gives us example after example of this truth. So with that in mind, what does God's view of victorious look like? I'd like to suggest that God's word and Jesus' own lips give us attributes in his church that define what it means to be victorious. In the book of Revelation that we looked at a moment ago, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to the seven churches there. And he commends and convicts these congregations. And the attributes that he commends there are these. Good works, toil, patient endurance, They can't bear evil. They call out false apostles. They bear up for Jesus' name. They don't grow weary. They're faithful unto death. They hold fast to Jesus' name. They don't deny their faith in Jesus. They're growing in works for the Lord and in love and faith and service and in keeping the word of the Lord. Now that's how God defines what it means to be the victorious church. And that certainly describes these persecuted believers that we've looked at. So think about these attributes. They really fall into four categories. They're standing on God's word, living to please God, counting on God's promises, and working for God's kingdom. How is it possible to live out any of these characteristics in the face of persecution? I mean, are these super Christians? No, they're they're men and women and children just like us. But they do it all by the grace of God and the presence of God with them, the gift of his Holy Spirit. It's that simple. He does that for us as well. He gives us the grace that we need when we need it. And he sent his spirit to help minister to us in every situation. Jesus tells us in John 8 that if we abide in his word, we will know the truth. And the truth will set us free. And so to the whole church, he's saying that we're free to live for him. Not for gain in this world, but for gain in eternity. Not for laying up (laughs) treasures on earth, but for laying up treasures in heaven. So when we think of the persecuted church, we might think of a church that's in hiding, church in desperation, a church on the run, being squeezed and crushed to the point of extinction. But hopefully, when we think of the persecuted church, we won't dwell there. But we'll first be called to pray for them. Jesus tells us in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So as we prepare to pray for God to send out laborers into the harvest, we know that the church has a long history of laborers being sent into this harvest, even in harsh persecution like we just discussed, to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Let's look at one example that Melissa read for us earlier of what happens when God's laborers are faithful even amidst persecution. I want to back up and place what we read earlier in a little bit of context At the end of Acts chapter 7, we see the stoning of Stephen, who, as far as we know, is the first New Testament martyr. In Acts 7, verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. That's when they heard Stephen preaching the gospel. They were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, i see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. In chapter 8, it says Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Just like what we looked at today around the world. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he that he did... Uh, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. (laughs) The first few verses of Acts chapter eight tell us that uh, uh, about the persecution of the church after Stephen had become the first martyr. In fact, Stephen's martyrdom was but the first of a coming massive wave of persecution against followers of Christ. And it tells us that all the believers except the apostles fled from there. But we should not miss the sovereign plan of God at work even amidst this persecution. It says that the persecution caused the scattering of believers. And yet, back in Acts chapter 1, we're told that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And it's amazing here that this scattering, this dispersion, is what led to the fulfillment of God's promise in Acts eight that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. See, God was working out His plan, His plan to spread the gospel through the scattering of believers that was a result of persecution. And in Acts 8, 4, we see these beautiful words. Now, those who were scattered about, those who fled because of their faith, went about preaching the word. They didn't let it, let it snuff them out. In fact, it seems that the only reason Philip went to Samaria was to preach, the, uh, excuse me, to preach the gospel was because there was persecution in Jerusalem where Stephen was stoned. And it says he proclaimed to them the Christ, and they paid attention to him, and many were healed. And it says there was much joy in that city. This is amazing. That God took an unspeakably difficult circumstance, and he used it to launch his people out like a scattering shotgun shell. And when they landed, they proclaimed the good news. People paid attention to the good news. And people were brought much joy because they trusted in Christ as Savior. Now, this is a beautiful story, but it's also not some anomaly of Christian history. In fact, the testimony of all of church history and the testimony of the global church today is that in environments that are hostile to Christianity, Christianity often thrives. This is because when there is a cost to following Christ, people don't do it casually. As so many do in the comfortable West. But you can just call yourself a Christian and that doesn't mean anything. When there's a cost, if you call yourself a Christian, you know what that means. When being a Christian means facing persecution, those who call themselves Christians are serious about their faith in Christ And they're serious about obeying the commands of Christ and sharing the gospel of Christ. And when all of this, excuse me, when all of us is called, while all of us is called, excuse me, into the mission field, which we reiterate constantly here, right? We're called to live missionally, we're called to be missionaries where we are. God also calls people to leave sometimes, oftentimes, to leave their home, to live abroad for the sake of the gospel. And we support many who do that. Praise God that he still sends missionaries. And maybe he's even calling you to go around the world to proclaim his good news to every tribe and every tongue. Thank God that he still does that. Uh, Lottie Moon, who you've probably heard of if you grew up in a Baptist church, who's uh, the the sort of international Christmas offering is named after. Um, She's a 19th century Christian missionary. And she served in China. And she once wrote this. How many there are who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing. Forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And bringing back a lost world to God. Now don't misunderstand. We, don't, we can't purchase our salvation. But discipleship, committing our lives to Christ is costly. We're called to give up everything for him if he calls us to that. And the Bible clearly shows us that God is redeeming a people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. The sacrificial death of Christ upon the cross made possible the salvation of a people from every nation and from every period of time. And because of the finished work of Christ, we know that God is calling people to himself around the world. But how does he do that? does that through you and me to those who've said yes to his call jesus prayed in the garden of gethsemane as you've sent me into the world so i've sent them into the world because the gospel is a universal call to faith and repentance you and i have been given a global mission church and to ignore this call is at odds with the clear commands of scripture now while leaving our homes to become foreign missionaries is not necessarily the specific call for every single one of us. We are called to proclaim the gospel globally. And what that means is we either go, we either send, or we disobey, in the words of John Piper. Church, in light of the cross and all that we know that God has done for us, we must be global Christians with a global vision because we serve a God who is a global God. As John Stott said, Because we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, we are indebted to the nations. We owe Christ to the whole world. So when you think about missionaries serving abroad, when you think about the church that is persecuted, imagine a church that stands on God's word, that lives to please God, that counts on God's promises and that works to see his kingdom come and his will be done. We see a victorious church, just like Jesus described When he told us the gates of hell would not prevail against it. (laughs) Think back to the example of Nehemiah. Where he said, as soon as I heard these words, the words of the hardship of God's people, I sat down, I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. But then, Nehemiah went to work. So how can we follow Nehemiah's example? What work will we take on? Some things we can consider doing are praying For our persecuted family like we're going to do today. Praying for foreign missionaries who uh, have chosen to to leave their homeland to proclaim the gospel. And pray that they would stand strong in their faith. Pray with our persecuted family to forgive and to bless their enemies. Stay up to date on news about suffering believers and the trials missionaries face. Keeping our prayers current. Tell others about our persecuted family. Invite them to join in the work. You can write notes of encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. We can go visit our persecuted family and we can give to help support the global mission of Christ. We're also going to give you an opportunity to do that over the next few weeks. Uh, Instead of taking the traditional Lottie moon offering that a lot of uh, churches do, uh, we're going to take up, correct me if I'm wrong here, a special offering for the Hardage family who uh, we know is serving in India (laughs) They're actually going to be home for a little while over the holidays, taking some respite that they uh, need. Um, and so pray about how God would have you give to help support their mission uh, to see the gospel proclaimed in India and as they're buried in now. So now that we've heard these reports about our suffering brothers and sisters, and as we've considered uh, those who have left their homeland to proclaim the gospel around the world, may we take our humble, open, and listening hearts to God, May let him direct us as to what to do next. And then let's get to work. So, we're going to spend some time in prayer today. Just you can, you can pray silently uh, where you are. And then Bryce will close us and we'll, we'll continue. But we want to uh, spend some time remembering those, again, who are persecuted for their faith and those who uh, are serving the Lord by proclaiming the gospel as missionaries in uh, other countries. So, spend some time uh, praying to the Lord for them. And then Bryce will close us in a few minutes.